Hello, everyone. I am Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Pradap Khedkar, the CEO of the management consulting firm, ZS. Prior to this, he led the firm's global pharmaceuticals practice, as well as a practice focused on the dynamics of healthcare ecosystems. He has also served on ZS board since 2012. Pratap holds a PhD in artificial intelligence from UC Berkeley and a BTech in computer science from IIT Delhi. Pratap, welcome to the show. Thank you, Harpreet. Very, very uh, nice to be here and to be speaking with you. Let's start with your background. You come from a family of physicians and also married to one. Tell us about uh, some of the influences that led you to a career in healthcare consulting. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually quite interesting. So I have like, I think, nine relatives on my mother's side that all ended up becoming physicians. Um, so there was a heavy pressure on me to also become a doctor. As you know, in, in, in India, when you grow up, there's always engineer or doctor, <laughs> not much else back in the day. But uh, so to me, I think what happened had been was the, the physician was not just a profession. I think in India, it's, it's really a position of respect. You know, it's the more traditional sort of rendering of the physician, which is that they used to be God. And of course, in today's world, they're more of a guide. <laughs> and that's been one of the changes. But in the old days, they were like a minor celebrity in the city. I still remember, uh, you know, uh, people I meet from that city, they, they all know my aunt because she practiced medicine there for 40 years. Um, but for me personally, I think what happened was I was a fan of the quant sciences, things like mathematics, you know, data, analytics, physics, all that stuff. And so I didn't go into healthcare in the more traditional way, meaning actually healing people and becoming a physician and learning biology. But what happened was in the 90s, I came back into healthcare because one of the things that began to happen in the 90s that was very exciting was the advent of data. See, healthcare before that was much more of a expertise science. It was about biology. Of course, there was a, a, a science to it, but there was also a softer element to it. But it wasn't very quantitative. Uh, the way it was practiced. And in the 90s, the result of data that absolutely blossomed in many areas. And my first introduction was I was actually at GE working for GE Healthcare. And, you know, we used to deal with X-ray machines that used to call up headquarters and transmit all their data back in terms of, are they going to have a defect? How many images are being scanned? Not the actual in, uh, content of the images, but simply the diagnostics of the machine. And so my perspective was like, hey, the machine is beginning to diagnose itself. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if it could diagnose human beings someday? Um, and so um, that sort of was a long journey. And towards the end of the 90s, then I got into some of this. I joined ZS about 22 years ago. And since then, I've really focused on how do you take the power of data and analytics to change healthcare in the world, which I think the world is at a big, big cusp of now. So anyway, that was the... A quick nutshell. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. Let's talk about future of work. What, what is your definition of future work and uh, what is your vision for ZS more broadly? Yeah. So I, I like to say, I think the future of work is the wrong phrase. It's the present of work. It's here. It's now. <laughs> um, and, and so actually we, we took that stance. So when the pandemic happened, you know, we went, we are about 12,000 people. So we went to work uh, around the globe. We went to work remote you know, in a matter of, I think, three days. We shut down, we went remote. Everybody already had a laptop, so it was really easy to transition to remote. So things were pretty smooth. 
Of course, everyone was expecting would be back soon and that didn't happen. But then what happened was about a year into it, uh, well before the pandemic got over, late 2020, early 21, we ourselves realized that the future is going to be dramatically different. This will take 18 to 24 months to come out of, but the future will nothing will be nothing like the, the past. And so we instituted this thing called flexible and connected work or the flexible and connected model of work. And we already said, we are never really going to ask everybody to come back five days a week. That's, that's done, that's history. But what we are saying is that it is always a mix. So we are, what we are saying is, you know, you have the flexibility to work from home one, two days a week, uh, but the rest of the time, you have to spend in the company of other people. Now, wh why is that and what does that mean? I think one nuance had read that all these articles, I mean, there's a thousand articles a day about the future of work, um, um, but they miss one nuance, which is that the nature of the work the company does is a very critical element. Like you can't just compare Target and Coca-Cola and ZS and some chicken manufacturing plant because the roles that people play, is it knowledge work? Is it what kind of knowledge work? That is really, really important, that nuance. And so what we do, of course, we're a consulting company. So we spend a lot of time with clients. So it's not just about spending time with each other. We are spending time with the constituency, which is actually the center, the core of why we exist is to serve clients. And many clients do want to be served in person. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about essentially just us saying yes or no. It's about saying, well, if the clients are back at work and they do like to think and, you know, have an agenda shaping discussion or have a real problem that they want to be able to express and conduct a, a workshop with 10 of their people and five of our people. Well, you can't really do that over Zoom. Um, and so I think we have been led by what the client needs are. That's one. So we are saying, okay, you don't have to come to work every day, but you do have to spend some time with clients. The second piece is we are rapidly growing and we hire actually a lot of young people. So we hire people fresh out of school in, in, um, in because we're a consulting company. In fact, we hire, I want to say, I think we hired like half the company during the pandemic. It's been growing a lot, right? So with the attrition and all that. And so as you know, when people come on board, they're hungering for culture. So when I talk to the new people, they're all like, yeah, we want to come to work. We want to get to know people. It's a, it's a big part of their future life. They're 22 year olds in some cases. And so to me, onboarding culture, making them feel part of the ZS community, relaying the story. You can't tell stories on Zoom. You, you tell stories having pizza you know, at the lunch table, late at night working on a, on a client project at 10 p.m. at night. And that's when the stories come out. The culture can be seen, it can be felt, it can be observed. It doesn't come out through a Zoom meeting necessarily. So I think for culture onboarding, for servicing client needs, for actually solving hard problems where you have to get together and whiteboard together, there are some things in the nature of the work that are really, they do require being in person. Um, and, but there is a balance. We are not saying it's 100% of one and 0% of the other. Uh, we do want to give people that flexibility to work from home because for some of the work, a couple of days a week, it's fine. And so we went into that mode pretty early on and we deployed that model. We are seeing great progress, by the way. Thousands of ZSRs are working in this model now each week um, and um, they're using that flexibility and adapting to this way of work. And, and, and are you finding that uh, before the pandemic, you probably had to be in person for every meeting, but now the clients are saying, we, we could do some of the meetings virtually, right? I mean, it's, it, 
is is that shifting using yeah so actually they're, they're very interesting approaches right many many clients actually are saying come back to work three days a week for to their own employees and of course if they are there then many times we go to meet them there but one of the client uh, uh, senior leaders said one thing very interesting to me he said even in my team what i'm saying is if the meeting is about presentation if one or two people are going to come up with a powerpoint deck and present to eight other people that can be zoom it's two people talking it's a presentation it's information that is being communicated it's one way communication mostly with some q and a do it on zoom it'll be remote no worries but if you're going to get together and get to the whiteboard because there's a problem there's a debate there's a discussion there's brainstorming you don't have a set script of what's going to happen in the next hour be in person so i think that is a very interesting dist- distinction as well it's not like remote is okay or not okay it's like what is the nature of what you're trying to do together mm-hmm. right um so i think that idea combined with the type of knowledge work we do has made it we have to be flexible some some clients are going to do it one way some clients are doing to do, going to do it the other way but i think we are adapting to all our different client needs as well yes uh, a lot of uh, perhaps uh, excessive travel can be avoided and things like that it helps the planet too but um, we have to be judicious because i think if we are thinking together it's much better to have uh, to be in a in a room and again if it's eight people in a room versus two people talking that's the other aspect of productivity right it, it's still kind of chaotic to have 10 people in the zoom trying to interrupt each other and all that um especially if they're trying to debate or discuss something so that's been some of the distinction in terms of the type of work that that we are required to do and it makes a lot of sense Let, let's um, shift gears and uh, mm-hmm. talk about healthcare so we talked about future of work what about future of healthcare How, what, what are the key trends driving the future of your industry what what are you excited about yeah so in fact that's one of the things that we did last year so when i i, I uh, got elected to ceo last year one of the one of my first tasks was to think about sort of the long term what is the strategy what is the vision what should we do uh 10 years out and so i had spent a lot of time thinking about trends before that so i think the way i think about it harpreet is the trends for healthcare let's really go out to 2030 not even the next couple of years end of the decade what might that look like in healthcare i think there are four trends driving this one is the rise of the consumer the healthcare is used to thinking about patients but i think we need to think about them as healthcare consumers not patients because they are becoming assertive they want to have power they want to participate in the decision in fact we did a survey it's like 70% or some large number actually want to participate in their healthcare decision they don't want the doctor just telling them what they should be doing they want to be part of that decision making so they want the power they're increasingly being asked to you know pay out of pocket at least in the us more and more so if their wallet is involved they want to actually have the information uh, and healthcare is not shoppable that that's you know people are like oh amazon netflix everything is shoppable i can go online do all this healthcare is complex and it's not transparent so it's not shoppable only 14% of healthcare decisions are shoppable that looks really really bad and really low the good news is it used to be 7% a few years ago so it's creeping up slowly but to me by 2030 i think one big change is the rise of the consumer as a force in healthcare 
and they will demand data, they will demand privacy, they will demand information, they will demand transparency, they will demand to have power. Um, and, and they will demand a good experience, right? So to, to date, healthcare has been about, okay, outcomes. Well, outcomes you can't always guarantee. Outcomes are not always amazing. After all, it's not a perfect science, uh, but experience can be guaranteed. Experience can be improved. And because of all the digital things happening in the world, people are expecting that experience. Second trend is the rise of the institution. So the physician used to be king, as I said, they went from God to guide, but the thing that got the most power in that bargain was the payer or the provider, the system, the institution, right? You can think about them as payers, providers separately in the US. In many cases, they are all one outside the US. Uh, they could be governments as they are like CMS here or say the UK government, you know, the National Health Service in, in the UK, and of course, other parts of the globe. So these large institutions are actually controlling a lot of the power. They are telling doctors what to do because they are now equipped with data. So this data trend that we talked about in healthcare is actually advantaging these institutions as they get bigger and bigger by acquiring each other. There's this spree of consolidation going on, right? Almost every week, one hospital acquires another one. There's, well, I think, 80 to 100 hospital mergers and acquisitions last year. Um, payers are getting bigger. Uh, they're getting very varied and complex. You know, United Health buys all kinds of companies, not just other payers. And so the healthcare institution is becoming very controlling, and they're trying to shift cost away from the acute care into preventive care and post-acute care. So they're trying to get a handle on costs uh, doing that. The third big power, Harpreet, the trend is the rise of digital. And of course, we talked about, when I say digital, I mean data. What do you do with it? Analytics. If it's advanced, it's AI. How do I deploy and scale it? It's technology. So I need all four under this umbrella of digital. And that is taking every industry by storm and healthcare is a bit of a laggard, but I think it's really, really going to transform healthcare as well. And the fourth piece, which people don't pay enough attention to is biological science is changing. We are actually talking about curing a disease. You know, for the first hundred years of the pharma industry, it was all about, let's manage the symptoms. You know, you've got a headache, here's something. You've got cholesterol, well, here's something. Then it became more and more about modifying the disease. So now we are in the middle of modifying some diseases, causing some uh, reduction, you know, tumors that shrink. Soon, and we are beginning to see that with CAR-T therapies, we are actually talking about one injection to cure a type of cancer. Now, it's not very widespread, but by 2030, you could think about something that could cure your insulin resistance, that could cure certain forms of diabetes even. So this idea that you're moving away from managing to modifying to curing is really, really amazing because this could revolutionize healthcare. Of course, they get very expensive. So I, I know it's not always affordable, but from an innovation perspective, that trend is also very interesting. So when these four trends come together, the rise of the consumer, the rise of the institution, the rise of digital, and the change in biological science, I think something very exciting will happen in 2030. It'll be some combination of these four and ZS's intention, its vision, is to be able to transform global healthcare in the context of these four trends by doing some connectivity of ecosystem stakeholders across uh, you know, the various pieces, but leveraging our strengths in data and analytics and technology to really make a difference. Mm -hmm. So the first two trends don't seem synergistic 
yes, that the yes. consumer wants to be independent and not be controlled by an institution, right? And the institutions want to control, decide when you get your insurance money and what, what's covered, what's not covered. Uh, so, so how do you see that playing out? So I think here's the thing. Um, unfortunately, there's a geographical bias here. Outside the US, the institution's going to win. <laughs> uh, because when you talk about large governments, right? If I talk about Europe, UK, uh, France, uh, even to some extent India, uh, as well as of course China and Japan, they're pouring billions into health insurance, into care delivery. I mean, you've got Ayushman Bharat, which is the largest uh, program, you know, any, any kind of quote unquote payer program in the world. Um, CMS is already pretty big in the US as well. So you can see that large institutions because they have the money, because they can plan for 10 to 15 years are gradually going to get the upper hand. Um, they also have all the data outside the US. In the US, I think it'll be more interesting because what has happened is that the institutions are big, they are controlling, but they're still fragmented. You know, you're still talking 200 large provider systems control maybe 70, 80% of the healthcare. There are thousands of them, but it's a long tail. Uh, and the payer landscape is more consolidated. You have maybe five to 10 large pairs plus CMS. So things are more like a capitalist system in that there are some very powerful players and they're getting more powerful, don't get me wrong, but they are not absolute in the way the National Health Service is absolute or the Chinese government uh, or the J Japanese Ministry of Health. So I think here, because the consumers are much more savvy, there will be an uncomfortable balance, which I, I think is really good for healthcare, by the way. I'm not a big believer in one of these stakeholders should always win. I think there should be some healthy tension. I think we'll get to some good healthy tension in the US. Outside the US though, I think we will, the healthcare will have to be expressed through large institutions who can make the investment, who have the data and will ultimately have the power. Uh, I think there will be that asymmetry, unfortunately. You, you've talked about uh, AI as a toolbox. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we, when we look at uh, healthcare, what are some of the challenges that AI can fix readily? And also uh, where can AI make the biggest impact? Right. So, you know, when people ask me things about AI as a tool, I'm like, look, medicine is a tool. Same thing in healthcare. Why do you go to a particular doctor or why should the doctor use a particular aspect of medical science to treat you? What are the principles? It's the same thing. So first thing a doctor does is say, do no harm, right? That's the Hippocratic oath almost. <laughs> do no harm. Whatever you do, don't, the downside is something you have to be very careful about. The second is trust. The doctor builds trust. That's how they're effective. How do they build trust? Well, they're good. They know what they're doing. They're competent. They're transparent. They will tell you if something can't be cured. They're not going to make you false promises and say, oh, everything's going to be wonderful. Uh, they tell you what, the good news is and the, what the bad news is. And the third is they are fairly responsible. They will not let you do some unnecessary, if it's a good doctor, unnecessary procedures and things like that. So I think to me, when you come to AI, you should expect the same. Do no harm. So you have to be sure that it's actually going to give you some benefit and not some huge downside. Second, trust in AI. It's a very big issue right now. And trust in AI for us, for this is the ZS point of view as well, we're creating a framework with exactly those three things. AI has to be responsible, AI has to be competent, and AI has to be transparent. And because you'll never be perfect. Competent doesn't mean perfect, but when you're not perfect, you have to be very clear what you're not good with. 
And so if people can see your flaws, they will trust you more as opposed to trying to pretend that this AI is wonderful. So I think those three things, responsibility, competency, transparency, roll up to trust. And to get to your question then, so I think this is the sort of the AI caution that I give people that look, it's, it's wonderful, but it's as wonderful as a doctor or medicine is. You have to use it the same way, it's another tool. Now, what is it good for? You know, one thing I think AI will be amazing at is it is really good at being an assistant as opposed to being a replacer, right? So if I think about a doctor, AI being an assistant to a doctor, a backroom assistant with so many tasks, it's wonderful. In fact, 80% of doctors are saying AI is already here in that role. So it's not like it's some future dream. It's here. Now, if you ask them, well, AI, can AI supplant you? Can it be a colleague? Can it actually do what your job is? And of course, they're quite skeptical. And AI is not quite there yet. So I think we have to be careful that we go from assistant to colleague in graduated steps. And really, we should focus on that part. The second part is AI is really good at doing what humans have shown it is possible to do. Um, it's just that humans can't do it. I and mean, they can't look at 10,000 images and do some complicated math. But looking at an image and diagnosing a cancer is something a human knows how to do. A radiologist trains for their whole life doing that. So make sure that you use AI for some of those things. The third thing I think AI can be great at is things that people don't think of as healthcare but that are very important to healthcare. Let me give you an example. Discovering new molecules for drugs. Right? It's not something a human does by eye. I mean, of course, they do a lot of lab work, but there is no downside there. If you come up with a molecule that doesn't work in clinical trials later, fine, you wasted some money. But pharma wastes 98% of its money that way anyway. Like 98% of all drug entities that are created never reach the market. They fail somewhere along the way because there's a very rigorous path there. But if I can make that 98% just be 90%, you know, the failure rate goes from 2%, uh, success rate goes from 2% to 5% to 10%. That's billions of dollars. That's amazing new medicines. There's no downside. If it's not a good molecule, it will get caught and it will stop. So AI can actually do many things that have only upside and not a huge amount of downside, but you have to carefully, responsibly pick these tasks. Um, that's one example. Another example is clinical trials, you know, Pharma puts hundreds of millions, billions every year in clinical trials. But why do trials fail? Well, not because the molecule is bad, but because they couldn't recruit the patients. Well, AI can tell you whether you will be able to recruit the patient or not. And if you knew that, you'd design your trial to finish faster. No downside to that. Um, it's just an operational efficiency. Customer experience, whether it's a physician or a patient or things like that, AI can send you an alert and give you a better appointment. Well, okay, that's fine. It's not giving you a diagnosis, remember. It's acting as an assistant. It is not acting as a healthcare provider or an advisor. There a human needs to be in the loop. So my point is just as the article I had written about uh, Tesla and the cars is with all the science, amazing, amazing amount of code, you still need a human steward in certain situations. I think this combination of human and AI will be amazingly successful. So I think as long as you keep these guiding principles and this way of applying AI, I think you can achieve a lot. And then slowly the AI will get better over time and we'll be having a different debate in five years. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. 
ExperVide differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, ExperFi Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the ExperFi platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.experfi.com for more information. So, so I, I guess uh, when it comes to core healthcare, pharma business, you're saying genomics is where there's, uh, or, or and, and, the, and the drug production, that's where the biggest impact is going to be. I think there are two places where the impact has been big in pharma, let's say. So I'll, I'll go sector by sector. In pharma, biomedical research. So just genomics is one part of it, but it's only one part of it because it could be genomics, uh, proteomics, uh, you know, all the metabolite stuff, the, the protein folding related stuff that's happening in AI with deep fold and such. So that is a very ripe area for impact. The flip side of that, Harpreet, is if you do something amazing, it takes 10 years for the dollars to have impact because it takes eight to 10 years for that drug, that amazing miracle drug that's been invented all the way to launch. Now, the vaccine shortened it to one year, but because we were in a crisis, normally it takes eight to 10 years for that to happen. And so people are getting impatient. They're saying, this is great, we'll do this. But actually to have ROI impact, I need something short-term impact also. So that's the other place where AI is helping is in the commercial world, like patient services. If I can predict that a patient on some expensive medication is going to stop taking it, I can intervene and make a phone call and say, all right, you need some help with copay. Please don't stop taking it. Is there a side effect I can help you with? So now that is an upside only because again, the AI is not talking to the patient. The AI has made a prediction. Sometimes it may be wrong, in which case no harm done. But if the patient is about to fall off therapy, see, this is the kind of thing that returns an immediate benefit. It is not some huge negative harming thing. And the third thing is, it improves the health of the patient. So the payer is happy because an expensive medication, if it stopped, it's a complete waste of money because then the outcome is not there. The provider is happy because it's like, I gave you the medication, you took it, fantastic. The patient is happy because the outcome is good. And hopefully long-term, if the medicine is good, you've saved a hospital trip. And so the overall societal costs come down. So there are some win-win situations, as long as everybody aligns around the patient and there is enough data, for AI to have this immediate impact today. So that's the other side of healthcare, far away from drug discovery, where I think these two sides, the AI impact I think would be significant. Could you say a word, Pratap, about uh, tackling the challenge of health equity? How do we achieve health equity? And uh, what are some of the challenges that we need to overcome? Uh, and uh, and you know, with, with the recent uh, Roe v. Wade decision. This is not just about uh, you know governments and institutions making impact. We also have other uh, political players in the mix now, right? So, so uh, it's a very complex question. I want to see if you have some thoughts. Yeah, you know the thing that sort of health equity hit me very hard um, was a simple statement that your zip code is a bigger driver of your health than your genetic code. 
and this is actually very real. So I'm actually on a, on a board of a local hospital system here, not too far from, I'm, I'm actually in Camden County in New Jersey. And you know that uh, Camden County has some pockets uh, where the health disparities are extreme. And I'm in sort of the other side of that county. And between my zip code and something that's maybe six miles away, another zip code, I think the life expectancy difference is like 12 years or something. So it's very much here and now. It's not a third world issue. It's something that the US, we have to deal with here and now. That was one. I think the second thing is, like I was giving you with the zip code examples, there's a lot of variability which gets hidden when we just talk about healthcare as an average thing. And that's my other phrase, the tyranny of the average. What I mean by that is like, think about a bell curve. We talk about improving the healthcare of the US population. So we focus on moving the mean because all these, everything we measure is essentially a mean measure, right? It's a mean over the whole population. And I think only lately because of the health equity type of discussions, people are saying, well, two things. One, if I have to move the mean, it's a lot of work you know, because you have to move the entire distribution right. Second, what happens usually in practice if you're trying to move the mean is that the front part of the curve, the people who are already um, health nuts, if you will, not, not the health nuts, which are on the other side of the curve, health nuts are like, okay, I can take three Fitbits and run and get all these diagnostics and tests done and stay really, really healthy, but they're already motivated and they're already reasonably healthy. And so the resources get, channeled in a way to the people who are pulling them, but the people who are pulling them are not the people who need them the most. In fact, 50% of healthcare costs go on the sickest 5% of patients. Not So, I mean, you have to pay attention to, to the other side. And so the second uh, insight that we were having was, uh, I remember we told you about sort of data and analytics powering everything was, look, health equity is a, is a sort of morally right thing to do, but how you do it, has to be hard-headed and quantitative. It can't just be, okay, let's go out and do good in the world. Because I think one of the things that is also a problem, a large number of institutions write these checks, 100 million for health equity. If it's charity, if it's donations, that's fantastic, but it is not sustainable. So that money runs out, then what? Are you waiting for the next check? You have to make it a part of good business. Health equity isn't just something you do because it's nice to have. It has to be done in a way that it's actually profitable, useful, and sustainable. So you have to fix parts of the problem that throw off enough resources that you can fix another part of the problem. And that throws off enough resources that fixes the third part of the problem. It's like social entrepreneurship, right? You're not in it just to do good, but you have to make it sustainable. Otherwise the good sort of expires after a while. So I come to the point now, one of the things that we've been doing at least our vision of health equity is put the data and analytics to really slice up the problem and see locally in the US, down to the county, down to the zip code, where the problems are. The other way of slicing it is by disease area, because cardiovascular, metabolic, obesity, cancer, they have very different drivers. Cancer is about upstream breast cancer screening. Uh, obesity is not about screening, but it's about other healthy habits or subsidies that substitute for the food because you're in a food desert, something like that. So the fixes, the drivers, the phenomena are very, very different, provided you start slicing by therapy area and the stage of the disease, early versus late. And so what we are doing actually at ZS 
is getting a lot of patient level data. It's all anonymized to really get down into the details of what does the health equity patchwork look like? Where by geography, where by therapy area, and where by stage of disease. And by doing these fine cuts, we are actually identifying a lot of micro problems that have different solutions as opposed to a macro problem that feels important, but it's really hard to move because it's so big. And so you get some very interesting insights about, you know what, for this disease, for this population, the issue is travel. It's not a problem of medicine or having free care, or any of that. Like they don't have a bus service. They can't get to the doctor often enough. So if you fix that one problem, boom, you can make an improvement. For another disease area, for another population, it's an issue of age screening, getting to them early enough. Not about travel at all. So you have to solve these mini problems. And so you have to have a program of lots of uh, mini problems and actions as opposed to, here's a big check, go fix the world, right? So I think that's kind of the philosophy that we are bringing to health equity and making something real, tangible, sustainable happen over the next 10, 15 years, which I think we absolutely need. Oh, this is uh, very, very interesting. If we were to introduce the element of public health into this discussion, mm-hmm. uh, and if you were to consider, you know, uh, uh, other countries that, that are not as fortunate like India and uh, other South Asian countries, how, how, do you, how do you see health equity playing out where, you know, 70% of people are below poverty level and, uh, you know, so they, they, they're just getting by on yeah. a day-to-day basis. So, uh, you know, what, what do we do in that situation? So there's a couple of very interesting things. Let's just pick the example of India, let's say. Um, one goes back to, so first thing is, if, if health equity is only going to be solved by these micro problems, the big challenge is data. In the US, we're beginning to get data, but again, data is good for the medical part. It's really poor for the genomic part. And it's pretty bad for these, what I call social determinants of health, right? The socioeconomic factors, income, education, location, um, personal behavior, uh, how how lonely you are, how many friends you have, all kinds of things have an impact on your health. Um, So this data is beginning to be available in the US. It's very hard to get in India. So I think one of the things that are happening in other parts of the world is People are recognizing this is a long-term problem. It needs a long-term solution. But meanwhile, we do need the data. So let's start collecting the data and build an infrastructure. It will take a while to get there. But I think if you don't start, then it never happens. And then you never even have enough data to diagnose the problem. That's one thing that's happening slowly. The other thing that's happening, Arpit, in terms of health equity specifically is 70% of the people in your example don't have access. They're just getting by because there's a huge doctor shortage, nurse shortage community worker shortage, right? Uh, In Africa, in large parts of India. Um, And this is where I think, I think, see India is in this amazing position of, most people have a smartphone. They may not have access to healthcare. (laughs) Um, But this is where things like digital and AI can actually leapfrog the system. Here, AI has trouble replacing doctors because there is a system in place. It's like, why the legacy system should, why should we change it? In India, the question is not that at all. It's like, look, I, if I, if, yeah, it's an AI driven recommendation, fine. Better than having nothing at all. 
So you are not replacing a legacy system. So like Africa went to cell phones without worrying about landlines to begin with, I think the healthcare infrastructure most of the world could actually leapfrog using digital, using uh, uh, the internet and, and AI. Now, there is a problem in that even in the, uh, the, especially in the third world, there is probably a 30 to 40% gap on broadband. So it's not that everybody is digital. It's, it's improving. It's a lot better than it used to be. But I think we can leverage. So that will be the second way that health equity plays out. That digital access to information, broadband, smartphones, these things are becoming cheaper that in five years, they become ubiquitous. And riding on their back, you can actually leverage things like digital and AI to make sure that a gap that used to be there doesn't matter because you've bridged over it. I think that the data collection, which is also, of course, related to that, um, and some of these more sort of creative ideas, which is, uh, I mean, Rwanda, it, it, one example, the intersection of digital data, healthcare in the heart of Africa. Uh, Rwanda is a shining example of some amazing things they've been able to do, where if you read those stories, it sounds like it's the US. Even the US doesn't have some of what they have because they've managed to be very creative with frugal innovation. Let's do things in the cheap, but because many of the digital things today are cheap, we can do something creative in a way that we don't have to struggle with the rest of the system in other parts of the world. So those are some thoughts. And we are also interested in sort of following up on some of these areas, especially around health equity uh, in some other parts of the world. So that's something that we are actively working with organizations that are local to see how we can help. What does what a diverse and inclusive company look like from your perspective? Uh, can you elaborate um, on how you are striving for diversity and inclusivity at ZS? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, had for a while uh, our DEI Council. So the three principles, Harpreet, that we are espousing are diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, all of them are important. Now, our philosophy, our vision is that, look, we at ZS want to reflect the world we serve. And the world we serve is really two things. One is our clients. Um, and then of course, patients, we've been talking about patients. Now we don't serve patients directly, but the whole point of working with all our clients is to impact the health outcomes of patients eventually all over the world. Um, and so we are trying to make sure that is our North Star, which is we are not, it's not some arbitrary set of numbers. It's like, we have to reflect the world that we serve, the world of our clients and the world of our ultimate end customers, which is the patients of the world. And so our employee base should reflect that. Obviously, there are some areas that we are working on more than others where the gap is bigger. The second thing that I, I mean, we are about 46% women in North America. So we are you know, reasonably close to what would reflect the patient population at large, for instance, but that's not always true in other parts of the world. Uh, we also track inclusion, which is it's not enough to have diversity, that everybody needs to feel like they belong. And this gets back to part of that flexible and connected model of work we talked about because creating community, creating belonging is very, very central to our culture. Uh, luckily, we do these surveys every year. We have a very good, so 81% of the guesses on average have that feeling of inclusion of community like they belong, which is really important. Um, 81 is not 100. And so there are obviously some parts where we have some work to do, but it's, it's, it's getting there. The second element I want to also stress is we talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, all the sort of usual dimensions, but I also want to sometimes 
emphasize that it's also about diversity of thought. Not just what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. How this person thinks, what background they came from, what experiences have they had? Are they the creative type? Like we are initially, you know, many years ago, we were a company like me, a lot of quant people. And then we hired a lot of these creative artist type people. And it's amazing, right? Because it's like, sometimes that clash is more fundamental than any of the other uh, segments that you think about. Uh, people think so differently, but what we have found when we're creating these cross-functional teams, it's, it's really amazing how people bounce off of each other. And it's like, this is fascinating. I would have never thought of saying that or thinking that or taking that away from this picture. And this person just immediately went there. So this idea of diversity of thought when you're solving hard, unstructured problems for the world is very, very key. Um, so that's, that's another way in which we are trying to change ZS. But of course, all the sort of standard ways of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion remain very, very important to us. Let's discuss uh, the ZS prize. Uh, can, can you tell us more about it? Sure. So based on this healthcare vision uh, that I've been talking about, right? ZS wants to transform global healthcare. And one of the things, this plus the health equity conversation we were just having, so we wanted to do something kind of inspired by the experts. And the idea was, let's focus it in areas that we're very passionate about, hence healthcare. Second, let's focus it on creativity, not just for the sake of innovation, but where there is really major need, where you can make a bigger difference because the baseline is very low. Um, and it, then it turns out on top of all that, that about two thirds of our employee base is in India. And so it sort of all came together. It's like the people are there, they're passionate. They can see the need around them every day. They have a good healthcare program thanks to an employer like ZS, but people around them are not so unfortunate. Uh, so we wanted to do something like that. So we started the ZS Prize in India. Basically it is um, uh, about 1.5 crores of prize money. Um, so uh, that's about a quarter million dollars, give or take something like that. Um, and the idea was let's source creative ideas from both the startup scene, which as you know, is very, very sort of exciting in India right now with so many unicorns and startups. The startups in India, thousands of them, amazing ideas. And also the academics, the students, students working with faculty, lots of great ideas. And the focus was fairly broad, it's healthcare, but something that used data, technology and science, which are kind of our core. Um, so it wasn't simply about, okay, you know, here's a startup that hires community health workers to go and help people. I mean, there are plenty of good organizations that do things like that. We wanted to focus in on this strength of, can some use of the way that digital works uh, be leveraged here? So that was the idea. And we sourced, I think, uh, probably a couple thousand, lots and lots of different applications and, and ideas came forth. And we boiled it down to the last 20. And I remember I was really involved with those last 20, evaluating the presentation in detail and so on. And it's like, it's amazing. It's really hard to choose, right? So what impressed me, and of course the final jury selection was done outside ZS by these eight eminent jurists, including very famous personalities in India. Um, so and they picked, they picked a prize and some runners up. One of the things we did throughout the process had priest was because we are consultants and we are passionate, we actually work with these firms to say, hey, 
have you thought about going to market this way? Because our firm actually specializes not just in healthcare, but in things like taking things to market. And so we were able to work with them to do a lot of sort of pro bono consulting to help them evolve their ideas, regardless of whether or not they want the prize money. So thinking about their business plans, helping them, learning in turn what amazing ideas exist in the ecosystem, and then rewarding a few of them and then sort of helping them on their way is something that was very rewarding for our people and for us and for healthcare in India and of course the winning companies. And so we are planning to sort of repeat that mm -hmm. uh, every, every few years. Um, perhaps in other parts of the world as well, but definitely in India. And, and you, you, can you mention some notable uh, submissions that really impressed you or the one that actually won? Yeah, you know, the one that won um, was a very interesting idea of using essentially social media self-help groups to help people who stammer, okay? And you don't think of it, oh, this is not a major healthcare problem, but it's a significant stigma. In, in many societies around the world and definitely in India. Um, and so the question was, how do you use social media, different people who never met each other, who don't live in the same city to create these self-help groups? That with the, the app basically helps them get over this. Essentially it's giving them therapy, but in a group setting using a digital app that helps them overcome this fairly significant uh, handicap. So it's not, and then, by the way, there were other submissions that were much more high tech about saying, here's a portable machine that with this little data can diagnose this and this condition. So there were some sort of very high tech AI driven things as well. But what I really liked about this particular winning entry was um, the creativity, see something that only digital can make possible, right? It's, it's not something the old world a doctor getting together people could actually even solve in a practical way, given the type of condition this is. And so only digital makes it possible. It is really, really cheap to adopt because all you really need is a smartphone. Back to our earlier discussion we were having. And it really opened our eyes to not just thinking about healthcare as debilitating disease. It's everything. It's good nutrition. It's, you know, being able to deal with all these handicaps and overcome them. Of course, it is about disease, both chronic and acute and so on and so forth. So this idea that you can actually think about the healthcare landscape in this broad way and help millions of people. I mean, that's the other thing about this. Like the moment you have an app, Scaling it is more a matter of adoption. Whereas in acute care, with hospitals building and all that, scaling it is a matter of many more things than adoption. You have to build a hospital, you have to get people to come there. And so in some senses, I think this ZS Prize helped us find these pockets of myriads of ways of helping the world in ways that are relatively low capital intensive. And I think that's the kind of creativity the world needs because you can't solve every problem that way, but you can solve you know, large fractions of problems that way. So anyway, just some cool examples. That's great. So stop any parting words for our audience? Um, so hopefully you got a sense of uh, the passionate kind of place ZS is. Um, one of the things I always tell folks at ZS who ask me is like, what is the one thing is like success factor at ZS? And I say passion. Uh, because if you have the passion, you will become excellent. Doesn't matter if you're not today. 
but how are you going to get better than the, the, the yourself that was there yesterday? You're competing against yourself. You're not competing against the world. Passion is really important. And the other thing is collaboration. This is not a place where you are an island. You can be excellent alone, maybe, you'll be amazingly excellent with the help of others as part of the team. So to me, the passion part and the collaboration part, put them together. So, I mean, as an individual, as parting words to your audience, I think to me, passion and collaboration come together and make point them towards some of the hardest problems in the world. And, you know, that's, that's how you change the world. That's how you change the yes. I tell my, the employees who come, it's like, don't just think about how we are going to change you. How are you going to change us? Um, it's a two-way. And I think that two-way has to be applied to everything anyone participates in in the whole world, be it an employer or something else. So That's very, very well said. So thank you for, the, for this very exciting conversation. It was very rewarding. Thank you, Harpreet. It was a pleasure talking to you uh, about a very, very vast range of issues. So hopefully your audience enjoyed it as well. Thank you once again for inviting me.